see this happening when we come to chapter 12. So from chapter 12 to the end of the book, the last half of the book is all about the dragon and his beasts versus the lamb. Very simply, that's what the overview of chapter 12 through 22 is. It's about the, a great dragon and his beasts making war with the lamb and his people. Chapter 12 on through the end of the book is about a city, Babylon, versus a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. From chapter 12 on is about a unfaithful harlot, drunken with the blood of the saints, versus a righteous bride coming together with her husband. It's about, it's about two feasts. It's about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where this marriage is taking place, and it's about the feast of the fowls of the air, gathering what's left of the carcasses of the beast's army. So it's portrayed in several different pictures here in the last half of the book of Revelation. But when we come to chapter 12, it looks like we start all over again. For these events, the last two events we talked about last week and the first two events here, as you see on letter B in the top of your paper, this is what happens in the space of 42 months. Those, that language is mentioned several times here. 42 months, uh, 1260 days, times time and a half a time. They are mentioned several different times. So what we find in chapter 12 is we see a woman giving birth to a child and a great dragon making war with the woman. And behind what happens on the earth is a cosmic battle taking place in the heavens between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. For we open up in chapter 12 and there's a great sign of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. She's pregnant with child. And then a great red dragon appears. And the great red dragon appears and he has seven heads and ten horns. And he goes out to devour the child as soon as he is born. But this child, who the Bible says will rule all nations with the rod of iron, he was caught up into heaven. He was caught up into heaven. And the dragon was cast down and angry to make war with the woman and her offspring. So this really takes us back to the beginning, to the birth of Jesus and the history of how Satan wants to persecute God's people. For we all remember when Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill all of the children two years old and under to get rid of Jesus. But we know that didn't happen. So what happens is that spirit, the dragon behind the action of Herod, now goes after God's people. So you see God's people being persecuted by this great dragon. The child defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection. The dragon is cast to earth and then the dragon goes to persecute God's people. And it says in chapter 12 that they overcome him, they conquer him, in verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even unto death. This goes back to the main, one of the main points of Revelation. 
God's people who are persecuted and even killed conquer and overcome through their death. That death is not a defeat for God's people. Death is a victory for those being persecuted. Death is a victory. So the dragon is persecuting God's people, but they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives to the death. That's why when you see people in heaven coming out of great tribulation, the souls that were slain, they're, they're praising and they're worshiping God. And those who are persecuted and martyred for their faith, we will see at the end rule and reign with Christ. But chapter 12 takes us all the way back to the history of how Satan persecutes God's people. And that's, in great language, what that is talking about. Now, moving into chapter 13, we see manifestations, human manifestations of this great red dragon. And chapter 13 uh, retells some of the story of the symbolism going back to Daniel. Uh, If you go read Daniel 7 through 12, you will see Daniel talking about different beasts. Uh, representing in Daniel different empires. Daniel saw uh, the Babylonian Empire with Nebuchadnezzar. He saw the Medes and the Persian Empire that would come and overtake Babylon. Uh, He saw the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great. And then he saw uh, a a great empire symbolizing the Roman Empire. And and he talks about dragons and he he talks about beasts and he talks about little horns and persecuting the saints So if you go back and you read through Daniel 7 through 12, you kind of see some of the story that he's talking about here in verse number 13, or in chapter number 13. But in chapter 13, John sees two beasts, one that comes out of the sea and one that comes out of the earth. These beasts are empowered by the dragon. One seems to have more of a political, national, military type emphasis The other beast seems to have more of a religious type emphasis to it that that points people not to worship God, but points them to worship the first beast. And um, so the question is, who are these beasts? Now, we have talked about the book of Revelation, and I alluded to some of this last week, and I'll do it today. Of course, we know that the book of Revelation has been interpreted many different ways. You know, some people, probably all of us in here that you know, grew up being taught the book of Revelation, have a futurist view of Revelation. That's the popular view of our day, that everything is to happen in our future. But that's not the way Revelation has always been interpreted. In, in fact, uh, the way we believe today is a pretty new way of interpreting the book of Revelation. We saw that there were historicists uh, back in the 1500s and the reformers that interpreted the book of Revelation one way for their day. There were preterists that see the majority of Revelation fulfilled in the past, in the lifetime of the the recipients of the letter. Then there are idealists that don't pinpoint past, present, or future, but that Revelation teaches an ongoing spiritual lesson for any of God's people in any age that are suffering persecution and dying for their faith with the message that in the end Jesus will win, He will reign and you will reign with him. So, there's our precursor for saying this. Uh, The futurists believe that this first beast is the future Antichrist. The future Antichrist is a future world leader that would have great power 
that would be given to him. Uh, he will initially be a man of peace. He will come as a man of peace. People will love him, but then he will make a covenant with Israel according to the futurist interpretation of Daniel chapter 9, and it'll be a covenant of peace. But in the middle of that seven-year covenant of peace, he will go back on his promise, he will break the covenant, and he will make war with God's people, Israel. He will stop the temple sacrifice. He will walk into the temple proclaiming himself to be God, be demanded to be worshipped as God, and then proceed for three and a half years to persecute uh, Israel and God's people relentlessly. So that's the futurist belief of who this beast is. And they believe, and, and the futurists also believe that the second beast will be a religious beast, some type of a uh, false uh, religion, uh, some type of a apostate religion that will cause people to worship not God, but worship the beast. So that's the futurist view of Revelation or the beast. Uh, the preterist view, the past view, is that this beast was, was actually a character in history. In the first century, the Roman emperor Nero. Uh, Nero was the emperor of Rome, who ruled over the city on seven hills. Nero had a god complex. You know, he thought he was the god Apollo reincarnated. Uh, in fact, there was inscriptions that equate Nero with Apollo. Nero was the first great persecutor of Christians. Uh, at first, he was peaceful with the Christians, but then he persecuted the Christians uh, violently. He lit them on fire as torches to light the streets, to light his garden. He put them uh, in the lion's den, so to speak, so the lions could tear them apart. He persecuted relentlessly Christians, and he persecuted them for almost exactly 42 months, from around November, October, November of 64 up until his death in A.D. 68. After Nero's death, uh, after Nero's death, Rome almost fell apart, but they came back together. Persecution escalated, and it turned upon the Jews. And the Jewish-Roman War culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And uh, preterists would be quick to point out that Nero's name in Hebrew, uh, written out in number form, equals 666. Uh, so the preterists, though the futurists look for a future Antichrist, the preterists look for a past Antichrist in the form of Emperor Nero. Uh, your idealist would say, yes, Nero was the beast. The idealist would even say, yes, there's coming a future, future Nero, a future Antichrist. But there's also been these type of Antichrist figures all throughout history. You know, you, even going all the way back to to Nebuchadnezzar and, and then the Roman emperors Nero up until, you know, Hitler and Stalin and on and on and on. They would point out that there's always been these leaders with a God complex that want people to worship them and persecute God's people. So that's what your idealists would say. Uh, so your futures would say only in the future. Your predators would say only in the past. Your idealists would say yes and both and keep continuing. Uh, but whether you see it in the past, the present, or the future, a lot of the characteristics are the same. The beast and the beast kingdom, and, and the beast here is used, it can be used of individuals, but it can be also be used as a nation as a whole. 
Uh, so even, and that goes for predators and futurists, and the futurists, they would see a world leader, uh, antichrist, but they would also see the antichrist system in the nations that would persecute. Uh, the preterists would see Nero as the antichrist, but they would also see the Roman Empire being the beast as well. So there's a general and then a specific. But these beasts and these beast kingdoms demand full allegiance from the people. And it's culminated and symbolized when we get down to chapter 13, uh, verses number 16 and 17, in the mark of the beast. And there's obviously, as we mentioned last week, a lot of speculation about what is the mark of the beast. I mentioned a couple of those last week. Uh, you know, it, it was, you know, way back when it was going to be a tattooed mark. They would literally tattoo on people's forehead, 666. Uh, then the barcodes came out, and somehow that related to 666. Six and now the thing uh, is 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 microchips that everybody will be microchipped uh, and it's put that way because of the statement that you will not be able to buy or sell unless you receive the mark and of course you know we could all see it really doesn't even take a prophet of God uh, to see that our world is moving to a society where it will be cashless now whether that's Bible prophecy or whether that's just the way the world is going is waiting to be seen. We'll have to wait till the future to find out exactly all of that. Uh, but the point is, is that this future beast or world leader would use, you know, obviously now because we're really past barcodes and tattoos, uh, you know, a microchip uh, that would be implanted to track people and their buying and selling in order to control them. And that would be the mark of the beast. A um, couple of things we have to to remember about the mark of the beast biblically. Again, because we don't interpret Revelation by the newspaper, we interpret it by the Scripture itself. And here's what we've seen. The, the mark, what, no, no matter what, if, if it will even be a physical form, you know, like a microchip or whatever, or, or you know, looking to the past, marks symbolize who you belong to and who you worship. You know, you're not going to get a vaccine and they're going to slip in a microchip and say, oh, now you have the mark of the beast. And you're going to be like, oh my, what do I do? That's not what it's going to be, okay? Let me just put you, that's not what, you will not unknowingly take the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast is representative of worship and who your allegiance is to. So you will worship the beast. So unless you're worshiping the beast and you're in allegiance to him, then you're not going to receive the mark and not know it. Because the mark of the beast is contrasted, and the name of the beast and the number of the beast is contrasted with the mark that is on the 144,000. They are sealed with the seal of God in their foreheads. So is the Antichrist going to have a microchip and God's going to say, here's my microchip line over here? Or does it symbolize worship and allegiance? If you side with the beast and worship him and give allegiance to him, the scripture is clear that destruction would come. If you are marked and sealed with the seal of God and you're faithful to him and you worship him and follow him, then you will not face judgment, but you will rule and reign with him. It symbolizes allegiance. This also goes back to the Old Testament, back all the way into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, talks about, it's what's called the, the Shema in Hebrew. And the Shema says, well, let me go back and read it so I don't 
misquote it. Here's what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse number 4, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's where your allegiance is. That's where your heart is. That's where your worship is. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall bind your allegiance and worship to God as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They shall be on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the point is, is that this is the Shema. This is the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. That's your allegiance. That's who you worship. And God tells them to bind them on your hand, bind them on your forehead. He even goes and says to put them on your doors. Now, a lot of people in Israel took that as literal. In fact, the uh, Pharisees would walk around and they would have phylacteries on their heads with the, you know, the Torah you know, in this box on their head to symbolize their faithfulness to God. Uh, however, Jesus pointed out very quickly that the Pharisees were not faithful to God. Uh, so this is your allegiance. And many scholars believe that John pulls from this when he talks about, you know, your worship and allegiance to the beast, you know, with his uh, mark on your right hand or your forehead. And obviously, the beast demands full allegiance. Um, he demands to be worshipped. He demands people to uh, follow him in everything. Um, let me just point out something else to you. Back in Revelation 13, 16. Um, right down to 18. This is one of those things that make me as a Bible interpreter go, hmm whenever I read things. Because again, remember Revelation is an epistle. It was a literal letter written to seven literal churches that people delivered and they were to stand up and they were to read to their congregation. And this phrase is used twice. Whenever a phrase occurs twice, it always piques my interest. In verse number 18 of Revelation 13, notice this. It says, this calls for wisdom. Just those words. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So here's my question. If this was only in the future, and this was written to seven little churches, and they were to read this, and what was the first words of Revelation? One of the first words. Blessed is he who reads the book aloud and who keeps what the book says. All right, so you would be sitting there in the first century, and you would read this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. And these are churches that are already going through persecution under the Roman Empire. For his number is a man, the number is 666. So obviously they want to go ahead and try to figure out what the number of the beast is. So they can know the beast. Well, if this was only for our future, then you've had people try to sit here and figure out the number of the beast in their own generation 
And they were just wasting their time. So this was something that they, John told them, if you're wise to figure out. Now look over in chapter 17 real quick. Verse 9. Revelation 17, 9. I'm slowing down. This is not good. Just so y'all know. Look at verse 9. There's so much interesting stuff in here. This calls for a mind with wisdom. So this is something else the readers have to try to figure out. And it's going to expose them to who the beast is. So in chapter 13, you had, this calls for wisdom. Verse 9, or 17, 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Something else they have to figure out. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Well, most of them would have believed that that was Rome. And there are seven kings. And and here's another riddle. Five of whom are fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a little while. And the beast that was and is, is is of the eighth and belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. So there's another riddle that people have to try to figure out. But that phrase, this calls for wisdom. It's very interesting. So the question is, as an interpreter, you have to ask, what did this mean you know, to the originals? Was this something that they were to try to figure out? That They were trying to figure out the identity of the beast? Or was this not for them and it's for us and for you know, our future when these things uh, happen? And how would they have read it in the first century? How would they have interpreted these words? So interesting to ask. So chapter 13, we see two beasts. And uh, the beasts have dominion. Now when we go over to chapter 14, chapter 14, right after the beast, the people that worship him, taking the mark, what do we see in chapter 14? I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb opposed to the beast. And with him 144,000 who had his name, not the beast's name, the lamb's name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. So again, this is a picture of contrast. It's clearly evident. This is a picture of contrast. The beast with the lamb, the name of the beast and his number with the name of of Jesus and his father on their foreheads and the right hand on their forehead and on their foreheads, worshiping the beast, worshiping the lamb. It's a direct contrast between two groups of people. And, And if you could spiritualize it, you could say everybody possesses one of these marks or another. You're either devoted and worship the world system controlled by Satan, or your devotion and allegiance is to God. So you see this contrast. Um, these 144,000, it mentions in verse number 4 that they, they have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins, you know, whether that's literal. I had a pastor one time. He told the story of a lady that came up to him. She was a Jehovah's Witness, came up to him in the food lion, you know, and... Um, and she and was talking about Revelation, and, and he looked at this woman, and, and he said, are you one of the 144,000? And she said, well, I don't know. Only God will determine that. And he said, you're not one of the 144,000, because 144,000 are only men, because they've not defiled themselves with women, and you're a woman. You know, I don't know if I take that just literally. Um, virgin not defiled speaks of someone as opposed to a faithful person as opposed to a non-faithful person. 
When you look back, and we'll talk about it in a couple chapters, when you look back into Israel's history, they were unfaithful. They were defiled. They played the role of the harlot. These are pure. They're totally devoted to Jesus. They've not defiled themselves. They are, because the whole book is leading up to a marriage. The whole book is leading to a marriage. So these are, this is a virgin bride that will be presented to Jesus as opposed to the harlot. Uh, it also mentions they are first fruits for the Lamb and of God. That's an interesting statement there. Now, out of these 144,000 faithful, there are three angels that appear with three announcements. Chapter 14, three announcements. Announcement number one is the preaching. I'm only on this one right here. That's not good. I just, I just looked on here. That's not good. All right, announcement number one. All right, time to push the gas pedal. Announcement number one, they preach the eternal gospel. They announce the fall of Babylon. That's the first, this is the first time Babylon is mentioned here in the book of Revelation. It'll have great significance later on. First announcement, the preaching of the eternal gospel. The second announcement, they announce Babylon's fall. And then they announce the doom of the beast worshipers. So again, chapter before, those who worship the beast, those who have allegiance to him, who take his mark. Then you have the faithful followers. And the message coming out of the faithful followers is, number one, the gospel. Number two, come out of Babylon because she's going to fall. And number three, if you don't and you take the mark, then God will pour out his wrath upon you. So chapter 14 is a call to those in chapter 13 to come out and receive the gospel. Receive the gospel. Uh, verse number 12 of chapter 14 is a call to endurance. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, to call them to be faithful, to not go over to the side of the beast. And then we have this vision in verse 14 of a great harvest that is coming. And this is the wrath that he's warning people of. You said, well, I thought we've already seen a bunch of wrath. We read that last week, wrath after wrath after wrath. Again, this probably is going back and retelling the story. Now there's an angel with a sickle in their hand, and it's time for the harvest. And what you see here is there are two harvests, a grain harvest for Jesus to gather his faithful followers, and a grape harvest, a grape harvest which will be trodden down in the winepress of God's wrath. At the end of um, chapter uh, 14... It says the angels, in verse 19, the angels swung his sickle into the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or around 184 miles. Uh, so this winepress is great destruction that we see. Chapter 15 is... Um, Really just a setup chapter for chapter 16. Now in chapter 16, how'd y'all like that chapter? How'd y'all like that summary? Chapter 15 is a setup chapter for chapter 16. Let's continue. I won't take every opportunity I can get. Chapter 16 is, goes back to the cycle of judgment. We saw seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we see seven bowls. And the seven bowls, like the seven trumpets, echo back to Exodus. 
The first bowl causes painful sores because the earth is smitten. On the second and third bowl, the sea and the rivers turn into blood. The fourth bowl, the sun is smitten and burns people with fire. The fifth bowl, the throne of the beast is smitten. And then the sixth, so we'll skip over to the sixth. Um, Chapter 16, verse number 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. Now, it's going to mention a battle here, what we refer to as Armageddon. There's also going to be battle. another battle is going to be mentioned two other times. There's a lot of battles going on here. So he assembles the nations for battle on the great day of the God Almighty. And then Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go out naked and be exposed. That echoes back to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Verse 16 says, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now we've all heard of Armageddon. I remember being frightened of that word Armageddon as a child. But the sixth bowl was when the beast gathers the nations to make war against God's people in Armageddon. The history of Armageddon, well, first is interesting. First of all, Armageddon, translated means the mountain of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo. Here's a fun fact. There's no such place on the earth called the mountain of Megiddo. No such place on the earth called the mountain of Megiddo. In the Old Testament, there's the plain or the, the valley of Megiddo. The valley of Megiddo is in northern Israel where many battles were fought against invading nations. Uh, and you see here on your paper, um, for Megiddo, uh, th- these are several of the uh, battles that happen in Judges chapter 5, verse 19, in 2 Kings chapter 23, 29, and 2 Chronicles chapter 35. So, the valley of Megiddo was a place commonly where Israel would fight many of its battles against its neighboring nations. Um, as I said, there is no mountain of Megiddo. I mean, Megiddo is a valley. Uh, over the years, um, because of archaeology, Megiddo was kind of built up what you would call a hill, but you certainly wouldn't refer to it as a mountain. But many people today equate Armageddon with the valley of Megiddo. Um, which leads your idealist to say, well, there is no mountain of Megiddo, so this is not a literal battle, it's a spiritual battle. Some people say, well, no, because it's a hill, that, that could be referred to as a mountain. Um, but either way, you have this place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And these images are taken from a lot of Old Testament images, um, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Um, So there's a lot of places that this imagery is brought back up, but the nations are gathered together here against God and His people. Now what happens out of that is the seventh bowl. The seventh bowl, there's a voice out of the temple saying, It is done, and the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God drained Babylon the great and made her drink of the cup of her fury. So here we see almost the end of Babylon right here, but we're not. We're going back. 
chapter 17 uh, explores, again, the fall of Babylon, the final battle, and the new Jerusalem from a different angle. So when you get to 17, it's almost like we're backing up again because we've already talked about Babylon and its fall. We've already talked about we've, this is the final battle, Armageddon here. Um, we've already seen Jesus ruling and reigning and the saints ruling and reigning with him. But now we're going to back up and see it from a different angle. So chapters 17 and 18, again, paint a picture of the fall of Babylon. And its picture is that of a stunning woman. Stunning woman arrayed in fine linen and fine jewelry. But yet this woman is a harlot. On her forehead, is, on her forehead again, forehead is mentioned several times, on her forehead is written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now the harlot is contrasted with the bride that we're going to see, the lamb's bride. So the harlot here is described as one who's drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And she's riding the beast. She's riding on the beast. Now who is the harlot? Uh, to the futurist, you know, a future apostate religion who will join the Antichrist. To the preterist, it would be Jerusalem and apostate Israel who persecuted the church along with Rome. To the historicist, every evil image in Revelation to the historicist is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so to the historicist, it's the Roman Catholic Church. And the idealist would be the general false world system who seduces God's people. But this harlot riding the beast, her main sin is harlotry and shedding the blood of the saints. She's riding this beast, but then something happens. She's riding the beast, they're in allegiance together, but then you go down to verse number 16. It says, the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Being of one mind and handed over their royal power to the beast until the words of God all are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So the woman is this harlot, this unfaithful prostitute that killed the saints is described as this great city who the beast turns on. Now they're, she's riding the beast, so they're in allegiance. But then the beast turns on her, makes her desolate, destroys her flesh, burns her up with fire. And God puts this as he put it into the beast's heart to fulfill his purpose. Which if you read the Old Testament, that's not a new concept. That God used pagan nations to fulfill his purpose even against his people because of Israel's harlotry God sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem way back in the Old Testament he used those pagan nations that's really what you're seeing here you're seeing God using one pagan nation to destroy another but then God's wrath will turn against that nation, and they will be destroyed as well. So this is, again, the fall of Babylon. 
the fall of Babylon in verse 17. I mean, chapter 17. In chapter 18 um, is really announcements. You see an angel calling out, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Um, another voice says, come out of her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will share in her plagues. Uh, then it talks about the kings of the earth and the merchants mourning her because they were, she was a source of their income. The shipmasters, the seafaring men, they're all lamenting the fall of this city. And then in chapter 18, verse 21, says, So Babylon, the great city, or just, I'm sorry, the mighty angel took a stone, like a great millstone, threw it into the sea. So Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence, and in her will be found no more. And then it mentions no more, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more. And verse 24 ends, In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all those who had been slain on the earth. So chapter 17 and 18 is all about the fall of Babylon. Used in a lot of language, but it talks about this nation of Babylon. And this blends a lot of Old Testament imagery. Uh, In fact, 17 and 18 blend imagery from the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament, from the fall of Tyre in the Old Testament, and the fall of Edom in the Old Testament. It blends all of those images together. So, 1718, fall of Babylon. Then we come into chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we have the final battle, as mentioned twice, with the result being the vindication of the martyrs. John takes us back to the sixth bowl where the nations oppose God. And in verse, uh, the first part of chapter 19 is rejoicing over the fall of Babylon. When we come into chapter 19, verse number 6, we find the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is taken, imagery taken out of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. So you have the harlot. Guess what? She was destroyed. She was an unfaithful prostitute harlot drunken with the blood of the saints. She's destroyed, but now you have a bride that has made herself ready. So it says, let us rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So can you see the picture? Destruction of the harlot, marriage of the bride. And obviously, the righteous deeds of the saints. Obviously, this is the church. This is the marriage of Christ and the church. After the marriage of the Christ and the church, here we see heaven open and a white horse. And one that's sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now we're going back to the war scene. And this is the coming of Christ. This is a picture of the coming of Christ. And he goes on to describe Christ. Verse 13, it says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Notice before the battle begins, he's in a clothes dipped in blood. That's not the blood of the war. That's his own blood that he shed. 
and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure are following with him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is traditionally seen as the second coming of Christ that comes back when the nations are gathered together against Israel. And your futurists, especially your pre-tribulation futurists, say that the armies that are in heaven is the church that was raptured in Revelation chapter 4. They've been missing the whole time, but now Christ returns with the church is the view of your dispensationalist uh, coming in the future. And then what you see here after the return of Christ, you see another great supper. Now we just had the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now here's another supper. And uh, let me just mention some of the um, imagery from the conquering word is taken from uh, Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 talks about, you know, out of his mouth comes a sword. Uh, then the invitation to the feast of the fowls, that comes out of Ezekiel 39. It says in verse 17, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and captains, the flesh of the mighty men. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the one sitting on his army. And the beast was captured and the false prophet, and they were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him. So lots of vivid imagery here. But this great final battle with the armies of the nations controlled by the beast and the false prophet are defeated by Christ and the word that comes out of his mouth. And they are cast like a fire, or, or cast into the, yeah, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Then in chapter 20, this is what is the thousand years. You begin with the angel coming and taking the dragon, because remember, the dragon's behind the beast and the false prophet. He's controlling them. He's thrown into a bottomless pit. And then you have, in verse 4, thrones and seated on them were the souls of those who were beheaded for the cause of Jesus. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the vindication of the martyrs. They have been vindicated. Remember back in chapter 6, they cried, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And we went through a lot of seals and a lot of trumpets and a lot of bowls and a lot of wars and a lot of judgments. But in the end, Christ avenges the blood of the martyrs by doing away with their persecutors and those that would kill them and make war and rebel against God. They had been defeated. Now we see the souls that were beheaded, the souls under the altar, they are ruling and reigning on thrones. So they go from being sacrifices under an altar to now ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And of course, we can get into a lot of discussion about is this future literal thousand years? Is this symbolic thousand year reign of Christ? Uh, but then interestingly enough, uh, we go back to another war uh, in verse number 7 of chapter 20 where Satan's released from the prison uh, and he deceives the nations and Gog and Magog gather and they're all gathered for battle again. Uh, and again, before this battle can even get started, uh, fire comes down, consumes them. Uh, 
Seems rather pointless to me, but that's what's in the Bible anyway. I'm like, what is this for? You know, why is Satan thrown into a bottomless pit just to be let loose and nations gather and only get the fight and Jesus kills them all, throws them all into the lake of fire? You know, whatever suits God, he can do what he wants. Um, I would have done this a little different, you know. But anyway, that, that, and, that's, and this, this passage confused a lot of people for a lot of years. That's exactly what this is. Is this a, you know... We don't know what this is, you know, whether than the you know, futurists say it's literally going to happen just like this. That's, that's your futurist view. That's why they claim to take it literally. That after Jesus comes back, it'll be a thousand years, Satan's bound. Then after a thousand years of peace, Satan is going to be let loose in order to deceive the nations, even after Christ has been ruling for a thousand years. And after Christ has been ruling with a rod of iron and he's ruled with peace and harmony and happiness for a thousand years, um, all the nations want to go back and make war with him. So there's, there's a lot of mystery here, and I don't even claim to try to figure this out. Anyway, after that is the great white throne judgment. Uh, you can see Daniel 7, 9, uh, Daniel chapter 7 where the books are open, and you see the judgment. And then chapters 21 and 22 is our new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 21 is the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, the new heavens and new earth language is taken from Isaiah 65. Um, and then the temple uh, is described, or, in, or the new Jerusalem is described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Uh, and you see in 21, the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. In chapter 22, you see the river of life, the healing of the nations, healing of the world comes from the river of life. You find pictures in Zechariah 14 and 8 and Ezekiel 47, 1 through 9. Uh, then in the end of chapter 22, you have the conclusion, which is an admonition. Uh, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Um, then we have a blessing in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have right to eat of the tree of life. That they may enter the city by the gates. Oh, here's something interesting. You want another interesting little tidbit that's hard to figure out? Okay, so we've already, you know, killed everybody and the beast and the false prophet. And then we have the judgment, you know, where everybody's standing and they're thrown into uh, the lake of fire. So they're done away with. Yeah, yeah, sinners. Yeah, sinners that are judged at the great white throne. Um, and then you have the new heaven and new earth. And verse chapter 21, and in chapter 21, you have verse 8. The cowardly, faithless, detestable, the murderers will have their portion in the lake of fire. And then you have the New Jerusalem, you have the river of life. And then you have showing up in verse 15, outside, outside of the city, are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexual immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. So outside the city are more sinners. And then Jesus said, I send my angel to testify about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the sin of David. And the spirit and the bride say, come. So that, that's another picture. You know, what is this? Are these, is that just another metaphor for those cast in the lake of fire? Are there people, more sinners outside the city in the, in the eternal state? Lots of mysterious language. Lots of mysterious pictures. But then you have the invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty say, come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price let him come. So I love how Revelation ends with this, this invitation. But then you have one more warning after the invitation. If anyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book 
adds to them. God will add to him the plagues written in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which is in the book. They're described in this book. And then you have your epilogue. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So you have a traditional ending to this letter. So there's lots of mystery um, that obviously thousands of books have been written about, thousands of commentaries have been written about, about all the details of this book. Um, you know, I don't have all the answers to the details about this book. But anybody can see the general idea of this book of Revelation. And that is God's people suffer persecution, whether it be past, present, or future. There's a world system controlled by our enemy Satan who runs this world system, who causes nations and leaders to rise up, to persecute God's people, to kill God's people, to make them worship something other than God. And while the, God's people have been traditionally encouraged to endure, to follow Christ, to don't compromise, don't follow the ways of the world, even following Jesus to death, that Jesus ruled and reigned through death. And God's people who've given their lives for ages past and ages to come until however long, through their death, they will rule and reign with Christ. And Jesus brings judgment upon His enemies and upon those who would persecute God's people. So we should not lose heart. We should know that Jesus is still in control. And as Jesus conquers his enemies he gives victory to his faithful people and they rule and reign with him his bride adorned in perfection joined to him in one living in a new creation